Hi, this is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 7, Mind War. Welcome back to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Like its namesake, The Lurker's Guide, this is an episode-by-episode episode trek through... Oh, I, can't, I keep forgetting. We can't use the word trek around here. Um, <laughs> Stop this saying trek. Is, this is an episode-by-episode episode saunter through Babylon 5, one of our favorite television <laughs> series. And one of the people that is joining us this time also really likes this show. I'd like to introduce Mr. Andy Anotko to The Audio Guide. Andy, hello. I hope I'm not going to screw things up because... I, 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 was, I prepared myself for a space 1999 trip through this. <laughs> oh, Not <Lord>. again. <laughs> I, I, can, no, I, 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 I bet I can salvage some of this. I, I'm sorry if it's going to cause editing problems. Uh, there will be no Martin Landau in today's episode, but we will do our best to accommodate fandom regardless. Andy. Okay, uh, there goes that page of my notes. There we go. <laughs> Chuck that away. Andy Anotko is a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times and is a regular podcaster on about a kajillion, either as a co-host or guest, (laughs) most notably the host of the Anotko Almanac on the 5x5 network and co-host of Mac Break Weekly on the Twit network. And about the Twit network, uh, this is a question for you, Andy. Uh, one of your colleagues at the Twit Network uh, over on uh, This Week in Google, Professor Jeff Jarvis, he used to be a TV critic, and every once in a while he trots out this line on This Week in Google about the when he's complaining about getting in trouble with people on Twitter and Facebook, he always trots out this line that he never heard the end of it when he said that he didn't like Babylon 5. <laughs> Andy, why is Professor Jarvis wrong? Uh, the thing is... He's not really wrong because J. Michael Straczynski, I think he kind of set himself up for a, a, a much uh, more uphill climb because he, I think he intentionally set up the first year to play right into our preconceptions about what TV uh, sci-fi is supposed to be like so that he could then steadily start subverting all those expectations. So if if whenever I hear someone say that, oh, gee, I, I, I tried watching that and I just didn't like it, I always ask them, well, which episodes did you see and how long did you stick with it? Because I was exactly on that same page. I saw the pilot and I recognized every single trope that made me sick to death of Star Trek and other shows like that and it wasn't until our mutual friend jason snell uh who i've known literally forever and not figuratively forever because uh we both wrote all the songs together uh we <laughs> he, he basically is the person who said that yeah but I, I, it's now season two and maybe you should check back again and i've been a fan ever since so i i think that maybe he would have gotten uh, j michael straczynski would have gotten some more fans if he had been a little less clever early on or at least did a little bit more of a wink to yeah i know this these guys look like the klingons and these guys look like the Vulcans and these guys and you you think with what's this going to happen trust me I, I know what I'm doing I'm a, I'm a former story editor on Murder She Wrote I'm a professional here <laughs> that seems to be the standard method for somebody really getting into Babylon 5 unless it's completely accidental like it was for Erica you know there is a friend who is the dealer and hands over the gateway drug which is typically a box of a whole bunch of episodes right <laughs> So, Mind War. This one is an interesting one. Uh, So, if this is your first episode of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, if this is your first even, heaven forfend, episode of Babylon 5 itself, 
let me give you a little bit of the backstory of what you might have been a little confused by or what you needed to know going into Mind War. Babylon 5 is a United Nations in space run by the Earth Alliance almost 300 years in the future. Telepaths have started appearing on Earth. They're heavily regulated and must join an organization called PsyCor. Talia Winters is a commercial telepath. She's hired to keep deals on the up and up, and that's really all you need to know going into this episode. So, what happened in Mind War? Here's your recap. A powerful telepath on the run named Jason Ironheart flees from the Earth Alliance to B5. He hopes that seeing Talia, his former lover, will calm him down before he evolves into something dangerous. He's pursued by two psychops, two super-powerful telepaths who have a loose definition of due process. It's up to Talia and Commander Sinclair to get Jason past the psychops and off the station where he transforms into Galactus, I mean a demigod. Meanwhile, Sinclair's <laughs> on-again girlfriend and space prospector Catherine Sakai explores a remote planet, and stumbles across a mysterious giant alien spaceship that fries her ship's circuits, only to be saved by the show's supposed alien bad guys, the Narn. That was Mind War in less than two minutes, as is my custom. But what did we <laughs> think about this in our first rewatch in a long time? Uh, Shannon? Rewatching it, I think I remembered it better than I saw it this time around. Uh, this was the first time that uh, the word hokey sort of sprang into my head for some of the lines or some of the staging, some of the um, some of the actors' movements. This time around, the telepath thing irritated me more. The way Erica mentioned um, how Lita Alexander's lines really irritated her in the gathering, uh, just to show off, you know, hey, we're telepaths. The fact that Bester and Kelsey come in and they don't even bother to speak. They're just thinking into somebody else's brain. Um, and the, the mind scan scene, um, those kinds of things irritated me more than I remember them doing. But on the other hand, the story underneath I thought was a good one. So it's just I had some issues with the execution, but not the premise. How about Erica Ensign? You know, I actually had, I didn't have issues, too many issues this time with that sort of thing. I guess maybe I, I thought it was a little more subtle than, than some of that earlier. I did find that there were a few kind of exposition dump type lines, you know, how about how only psychops are the ones, you know, psychops are the only ones that can take down rogue telepaths. And it, it seemed a little bit stilted in the way some of that was described. But for me, that was a very, very minor point. Overall, I... I'm really, really enjoying going through these stories and watching them again, because it's interesting how I kind of don't remember <laughs> as much as I sort of think I do. So I feel like I am sort of coming at these cold. And this one is where I think, and I think I said this already before about a different episode, but I feel even stronger about Mind War, that this is where things really start to come together for me. Uh, I feel like everything is starting to cook. We've, we've been stewing. We've had all these different little ingredients, all these different characters and races, and, the, and Babylon 5 is just the big pot. And now everything has simmered together long enough that it's, it's starting to take on a flavor in the actual, in, in the liquid of the stew itself. Um, and actually, Stephen, my husband, who I've been watching it along with who really is seeing it for the first time this is the first episode that i think he could say he actually enjoyed <laughs> fully enjoyed he was he was up up on this one at the end of it so i'm i'm with him i really like my war awesome andy this is possibly the first episode of babylon 5 you've seen since we went through some selected ones for the incomparable a while back so Mind War sort of came out of left field for you even though you knew that you were going to be seeing it uh how did it strike you 
um, it kind of reminded me of the problems that I had with Babylon 5 in season one, because uh, it, it is a five-year story. And unlike a series like Lost, where they're just making up as they go along and they're surprised as anybody else that they got renewed and for year after year after year, <laughs> there's, there, was that, there was that infamous red binder in the production trailer that so there's the entire story from start to end. So it reminds me of how long it took for this story to really get all the engines firing at full steam and make this really feel like this is a show with a lot of potential as is i've i concur there's a there is a lot of uh, pipe laying uh, and uh, with a lot of the, the the dialogue this was something that uh, i don't think that jms really shook himself up um it just stuff stuff like that little little edges that needed to be improved also i i have to say that i will i'll balance one very negative thing with a very positive thing at the end so so please bear with me i i i actually had to make this note two or three times that the guy who played ironheart oh boy what a ham <laughs> that, that was not that was not a strong performance it it was like and 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 again uh, he he has a big job to do because he has to lay down i'm going to tell you the history of the psychor and i'm also going to have to tell you what's going on with the psychor the psychor doesn't want the, or the rest the rest of, or the rest of uh, uh, humans to know and i also have to tell you what the experiments and i also have to tell you about what's happening to me as a result of these experiments but they didn't actually get these people who know how to underplay anything it's like uh, I, I actually, I, I actually made a note here. I'm sorry that I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to make this to sound like it was a, it was an ad lib. I literally wrote out the sentence. It looks like Shatner made this guy want to be an actor, and then he studied for five years in an acting class taught by Troy McClure. <laughs> you know, I actually, was... I kind of, I kind of liked him through a lot of it. He was very earnest, and I liked that those parts. But yeah, I actually have a note in mind as well that that when Jason Ironheart is is staggering, it looks painful. Yeah, exactly, it's, it's not exactly. like it looks painful to. It's not. Look, it doesn't look like he's in pain. It. I'm in pain. Is is how it's it working was... out here. I was I was actually I know I was watching it all alone in the house, but I'm not trying to be a wise guy about this. But when I at the end when I see him like doing those really bad like hugely vaudevillian stumbling through the ship, I just couldn't help <laughs> exactly. but like I, I I had to like you know, I I had to go into Jerry Lewis mode <laughs> like oh, the hive and oh, the ship and the staggering and the and the and leaving <laughs> because it's just so it's just so big and bad and and the, and the other problem was that it reminded me. That of how cheap a lot of these sets and a lot of these things were, uh, I, I remember reading the uh, the Lurkers Guide uh, and the and the used group Usenet group uh, when uh, Jay Michael Straczynski was posting to it while while these things were airing. He would tell you behind the scenes stuff, and he would say proudly that, well, geez, you know, we unlike all the other uh, shows on this network, we were budgeted for one million dollars, and we consistently come in at sometimes as much as two hundred thousand dollars under budget. And I'm like, Joe. You didn't have to tell me that when I that that's this 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 looks like a very it's it would not be correct to say that it looks like a YouTube video because YouTube videos we've got green screens and people put a lot of like set dressing into it there was there was one scene where I'm not joking Catherine Sakai is in the scout ship or in the the explorer oh, ship the scout ship uh, and and I am not joking. As soon as we see the established shot of her like piloting the ship, I literally thought, "Oh, well, what, why is she in a supply in a big supply closet? Does she need like janitor equipment for? Is, <laughs> does she need to pick? Oh no, that that's actually the cockpit of this little scout's <laughs> explorer ship that's just dressed with. Let's just 
paint the walls with glue. Let's just like throw things at it to see whatever's whatever hoses, whatever sheets of material, whatever whatever sticks stuck to that. We will call that the ship. Oh well, and we'll put one rotating beacon just so people know it's high tech. I think so. her I think her console was actually one of those single unit uh, chair and desk combos that you get at your average high school just yeah, dressed I mean, around the side mm-hmm. and, and there and there and there are ways around that it's just that they didn't find a solution around it so I'm so I, okay that's very very snarky uh, but I will but I will say I was very very pleased that it reminded me of how impressive that this five-year story was because there are things in this sh- in this show that are genuinely no spoilers but that are genuinely uh, genuinely pleasing and satisfying if you're watching this for the first time but if you've seen all five uh, seasons of this you see that oh that is a direct nod to the final scene of the of the final episode of the series and here is this other thing that shows us that J. Michael Straczynski is not ready yet to show us everything there is to know about the Narn but he's clearly ready to start steering that ship away from hey there's the Klingon bad guy warrior race that oh there's something more to these people and maybe that's going to be worth me sticking around for episode seven episode eight okay i'll give you all a quick little uh, moment of uh, feedback or rebuttal on some of this william allen young as jason ironheart i thought that he was okay in spots and not so good in others and i was wondering how much of this might have been direction you're supposed to be this on the verge of transcendence, um, telepath guy, you're not supposed to actually look at somebody in the eye. You're supposed to be kind of blind because the whole universe is going on around you. I thought that there was like some (laughs) method acting there that almost worked in a few spots. But the bit and his performance that did not ring at all true to me um, might as well have been, might as well have been JMS's writing style as well. When he's getting ready to disintegrate Kelsey. He recites a Sioux, a line from a Sioux poem that JMS had really wanted to use for a long time. You cannot harm one who has dreamed a dream like mine. And I googled it, and it's a Sioux poem, and you know the original is all kind of nice, but if as long as we're uh, leading with the bad stuff before we get to the good stuff, one of the weaknesses of JMS's writing is when he goes lyrical. Sometimes lyrical really works, and sometimes it doesn't, and there is just no naturalistic way to say, you cannot harm one who has dreamed a dream like mine when you're supposed to be racked with psychic energy and trying to deal with somebody who's about to shoot you in the face. Yeah. There's a, there's a, I'm a big fan of Stephen Sondheim, and there's a patter song uh, from Company, which we have this this woman who's on her wedding day, but she's freaking out, and she doesn't want to go through with it. And only when you read the lyrics and the notes to the lyrics that he points out, the, he points out that you notice that not one of these lines rhyme with each other, because I know that if, if I'm supposed to say that she's absolutely panicking and she's, her mind is going a million directions, her mind is not logical and orderly enough to rhyme anything. So that's why there's not a single rhyme in her in, in her monologue. And so you're absolutely right. There's so there's just such a disconnect between him having to go wide, wide eyed and full Shatner in these lines, but also at times having to like steal himself and make that big dramatic payoff. I, I think overall, another note I made is that it sounded it seemed like the, the, all of this alliance seemed like like a, like an audition piece where you've got five minutes in the room with the producers and the director and you have to show that you have so much range and you've really analyzed every single line of this. Uh, and it's uh, the, the last thing that I would say is that 
it made me think today about the difference between how these shows were written in the 90s and how spoiled we are now that we have cable TV dramas and uh, and Doctor Who where they're kind of uh, they, they 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 there's a more air in the performances to let the actor indicate something without having to say something explicitly whereas i think back then there was still that sort of thing where look we have to we can't have the the char- we can't have the character simply look like he's freaking out and look like he's barely trying to keep control of powers that he that are still evolving that he doesn't understand we have to have him come out and say i can barely keep control of these powers that are still evolving that i can't understand so i should i shouldn't be mean about the actor i don't think i i, I don't think any less of him as a person i just think the performance was kind of yikes I actually liked, I thought it worked for me for the most part in this one. Pretty much all my notes about the writing in this episode are are positives. I liked Jason's speech about his mind being a seed, you know, that blossoms into a flower. That worked for me. I, I liked the speech about telepaths making love, even though, you know, maybe the uh, delivery of it wasn't as nice as I would have maybe wanted it to be. I still liked it. Maybe the, the line from the Sue poem was a little bit, much for me but you know things about like seeing not a man but a galaxy of subatomic particles that worked so i i I think in this one he he pushed my buttons in in the right way so so i'm okay with it but i do agree that it's a slippery slope and that sometimes it does not work for me this just happens to be a time where it mostly did yeah and for me it was kind of like the opposite reaction. Like I, I, I remembered Talia describing the thing about telepaths making love, but seeing it again had me scratching my head and going like, is this really necessary? Does this really fit in at all? Um, and it, what it made me do is start questioning, did JMS have to make them lovers? Could they not just have been teacher-student, good friends who stayed good friends afterwards? No, they, did they need... I don't think they could have been. I, I don't think that would have worked with this particular story. I think the reason that he sought her out was because he had such a connection to her. She was the one who grounded him and mm-hmm. kept Agreed. him sort of stable. I don't think somebody who was becoming a, a superhuman demigod being is going to search out somebody that they were just friends with or yeah. that they were just, that just had as a student. So I was okay with that, even if it was, you know... It, it, got a little raunchy there um but i thought it i thought it fit and it established why he would come to babylon 5 instead of going someplace else yeah i was just noticing that was that was the train of thought that it triggered in me it made me start questioning sort of that whole part of the premise rather than just sitting back and enjoying the story well that's an interesting point because i was getting ready to ask about the story structure itself so we have demigod comes to babylon 5 station demigod leaves babylon 5 station and our regular heroes, uh, Sinclair and Talia, although this is Andrea uh, Thompson's first opportunity to really carry an episode, it's almost like Jason Ironheart is the center of the story to the exclusion of the regular cast. And I'm wondering, does that really work? The old Star Trek writer's guides, which I've mentioned from time to time here before, one of the pieces of advice they gave to new writers was... Don't make your guest star the star of the show. But Jason Ironheart kind of is the star of this show, isn't he? I kind of agree with that. Um, One thing that it made me think of, it felt like Walter Koenig as Bester was the only other one really holding his own in in that part of the story. Um, You know, Kelsey, yes, you get that her personality is as sharp as her cheekbones, but she doesn't get a chance to do anything with her character, really. So, yeah, I think Ironheart kind of kind of eats up that whole story 
um, in a way. And it's only the balance of the Jakar and Sakai thing that keeps it from being his show entirely. I agree. I think, yeah, between Ironheart and Bester, the focus of this is not on the, the main cast. And I'm okay with that because it's still, it's season one. And as we've talked about, we, this is sort of, um, kind of monster of the week type stuff going on in each episode. And they really sort of seem like their own separate little, little bits of things. So I, I guess to me, it doesn't feel particularly out of place. I, maybe we just haven't quite gotten to know the main characters enough yet for it to feel jarring that they're not the focus of that story. I'm not sure. It also does a good job of really opening up the Babylon 5 universe because this is our we've gotten in the season one opener midnight on the firing line we got the um, conversation between Ivanova and uh, Winters which begins to illustrate just what a tough go it is if you're a telepath and you don't want to be a part of the Psycor. but this is the first episode that really expands on the telepath problem in the Earth Alliance and the whole nature of uh, telepathy and how you control it Andy, psychics, telepaths, hard science fiction. Do they go together? I don't know if I can answer that, really. it's It's really depends on what kind of story you're trying to tell. Uh, I did always think that Babylon 5 had a, had a more rich arc to tell with their telepaths than other shows had with theirs. Uh, where, like in Star Trek The Next Generation, we have an empath on board, and sometimes she can furrow her brow and have a nice dramatic close-up and say what people are feeling, but you don't really get into, well, what are the, what's, how do, how do the other people on the bridge feel about having an empath uh, walking around with them? What role do people with those abilities play, and how will it affect society? And as always, J. Michael Straczynski has to sort of sound that out at least for himself that if we are in a world of human if we were in a universe in which telepaths are real things what would happen and there would be a lot of people who are just like Ivanova who is just furious to just furious about having them on the on the ship who don't like hanging out with them there'd be people who are always freaked out there would be some attempt to have a have regulation on where they can where they can go and what they can do Uh, it would really shake things up so that's so if if that's an answer to the question, I at least think that it's a good thing that, as always, he's really thought this out as opposed to just thinking, here is the big bag of Lego bricks of science fiction you know, personalities and types. Okay, we'll snap in a telepath and just call this. See that red brick in the, in the yellow wall? Great. I've done that. So now I've got this cool red brick for you to look at. It really makes you want to think about stuff. Mm-hmm. Although I want to, I want to no, go back to something that uh, I'm, I'm sorry if, if, if I don't, I don't want to re- rewind oh, the thing. But uh, when you were talking about uh, Ironheart as the center of the episode, I was even as I was watching it, I was wondering how possibly as an escape from this from this character's acting. But just thinking, would this show have been stronger if they simply we'd never get to see Ironheart until nearly the end? All we know is that. All we know is that uh, uh, these these guys who seem to be very, very serious uh, uh, police officer types have gone all the way to Babylon 5 to seek him out. All we know is that uh, Talia Winters has some sort of relationship with him and there's some sort of a huge commotion coming out because a physical commotion as this person has been uh, causing damage to the ship. If we were really... Let, let him to be like the Maltese Falcon and we can just see what how are these other people reacting to the presence of this thing and their desire to control him or protect him. Maybe that would have made this an even better episode than it already was. 
I was just going to say, uh, leading off of the uh, the telepath discussion, I think Andy's right that it is, uh, I th- find it fascinating to, to watch JMS sort of pick apart what society would be like if it actually, if we had telepaths. And that, I think, led to a really cool, very, very subtle character moment in this story, which I think I've missed every other time I watched it. And that is, you know, up until this point, we've seen Talia trying to be friends with Ivanova. And we learned pretty early on why Ivanova has trouble with telepaths, uh, because her, you know, mother had to take the drugs and stuff. So she just is basically saying, no, I'm sorry, we can't be friends. It's what you stand for just doesn't work for me. And in this episode, um, after Talia gets scanned, um, she's pretty, you know, falling mm-hmm. over and, and Ivanova is actually the one that reaches out and offers her the water. And the two yep. of them exchange this really significant look, which just, it, it, you know, nothing else is done with it. It's a really subtle thing. And I think that's one of the, the places where Babylon 5 excels. They don't always hit you over the head with things. There's a lot going on in the background that you don't necessarily notice the first time you see it. And that look just cut to my heart. I was like, oh, look at that Ivanova's seeing that you know it's not just black and white there are shades of gray and and oh it just and I think at the same time Talia is looking at Ivanova and going like you know she might have a point (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah I like I love that bit too I love that too yeah, that whole scene, I think, is good because, uh, you know, when they're doing the actual scan, it is it is goofy as can be, you know, holding their hands up and walking around and her, dancing but back and honestly, forth. For me, it, it worked. I didn't it, it didn't bother me. Somehow they all managed to sell it. And I, I yeah, I don't think any of them necessarily on their own would have made it work. But with all three of them doing their part and that little dance, I was I was surprisingly OK with that. It wasn't as bad as I had built it up in my memory. There are these moments. I I love Babylon 5 so much that the hokey bit's really great at me. And I build them up to be even worse in my memory than they they turn out to be. Um, Yeah. yeah. I kind of wondered why they weren't a little bit more sensitive to one of their own. I think that they're definitely in the mindset of having to do their job and we've got to make sure that you're not lying to us about having seen this person that we're hunting down. But once their job is done, I would I think it would have been a more real moment to have one of them be the one to like, okay, here's some water. We know here's some salt tablets because I know we know what this does in the system. We're so sorry we had to do that, but of course we had to do that. Bester wouldn't be Bester if that had happened. I mean he's he's being set up as a bad guy. That shows his power trip a little bit. I don't want to state. I want there is more I want to say, but maybe I'll save it for the spoiler section. Yeah, same yeah. here. Into yeah. his character a little I bit. I think so too. Yeah, um, I do want to one one more thing about that scene. I think I just remembered one of the reasons that it works for me is the sound. The sound design in this episode I think is fantastic. The sound effects during that part really make it seem more believable. And then also later you get the scene where Talia is looking for Ironheart on, you know, level 16 and she's walking through and the sound design was just excellent there. You hear, you know, like, you know, pipes sort of squealing in the background as she walks through one section and I was, it struck me and usually I don't notice that sort of thing and if I do, it's usually a bad thing but this is one of the rare cases where i noticed it and it was good you know one of the things that i noticed along those lines was uh in the confrontation there is almost no music going on up until the point where he uh disintegrates kelsey um it's just nice and quiet except for all the lightning going on in the background so when sinclair hauls off and hits bester in the chin that's a really satisfying thwack you know Without any music in the background <laughs> really to distract from it. <laughs> uh, does anybody else, when you look at the Psychops, did anybody else think about Google and the NSA? Mm, 
I didn't. <laughs> the, the, I didn't think of that, but now that you say it, okay, I can get it. Well, I'm just I'm just making a broad uh, a broad statement about. I think the Psychor story feels even more relevant right now than it did in the 1990s, long before 9/11 and the the sort of security state stuff that we deal with right now. The questions of freedom versus control and uh, what you have to do to keep telepaths are like your ISP. They see everything. They hear everything. They feel everything. Uh, and what kind of control it takes to keep that power and access from being abused and what kind of abuses might be on top of it. This psychop thread just feels awfully relevant to me right now. Well, the yeah. big difference, of course, is that Psychor operates under a lot of government oversight and regulation as to their activities. <laughs> or so they say. <laughs> well played, Andy Anatko. Uh, Zing! That's one for Andy. <laughs> that's number wing. Take that, people who make billions of dollars on a technology that everybody loves and relies on every single day. <laughs> oh, let's move on to performances real quick. We've already sort of given poor William Allen Young a work over Walter Koenig as Bester. Yay! Woohoo! I'll, and, I'll, I'll say that's woo. all I got. Just a big oh, fat. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Andy, that was a little muted, sir. Well, well, only only because now this is this is again. I I, I hate to be saying things that are unkind. And I, I think his, his acting is fine. He's great. And Lord knows he's great in, in all of his future appearances. But uh, looking behind the scenes of production, I always wonder what happens when you cast an actor who is very, very famous and you let you got him because you've liked his work in other shows. But you're, you're getting the guy that you're getting. And do you have the conversations where you say that, OK, actor, I'm not going to name any names. Maybe, maybe I'm talking about Walter Koenig. Maybe I'm not. But say, you know, <sighs> that dye job on your hair and on your eyebrows it's really not working and if i'm not saying you are wearing a hairpiece but if you were wearing maybe we should style your hair so that it doesn't look like you're wearing kind of a bad hairpiece can we do that given that you're playing a role that is not you personally can we say that your character maybe has graying hair that's slightly thinning and balding up top because that i i will say that i was distracted by that the lack of connection between the age that I was seeing in this actor's face and the age I was seeing in his hair. That's all. <laughs> you know what? I submit to you that the um, sort of poor uh, dye job and toupee there was uh, it, it was done on purpose to fit right in with a low budget of season one of Babylon 5. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hair pieces aside, Walter Koenig. Um <laughs> You gotta, you gotta believe that half of the people who were watching this for the first time back in the '90s, when they see the next week Walter Koenig guest stars, were like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. But, 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 yeah, actually, Stephen, Stephen was was very excited, although he was a little bit annoyed because we are watching the DVDs, and on the Babylon Five DVDs, at least the ones that we have, when you click on an episode, it actually takes you to the chapter selection or the episode, and you get screenshots of, mm -hmm. of what's you know and he so he saw he saw bester um not knowing who that was and was like oh my god it's a <laughs> stupid spoiler so then he was upset but he realized then his he would have seen the name in the opening credits and freaked out at that point anyway but still it's kind of annoying <laughs> to have to, to to kind of block your eyes to not see that sort of thing if you can look past the hair piece what did you think of the character and their performance really good a good a good debut for the character 
uh, in that they got the they got the arrogance out there, but also the fact that he's not just a stuffed shirt. He really is effective at what he does, and also a good hint at however much we don't like what he did, we're getting a little bit of a hint that perhaps there's a good reason why this universe needs people like that to do that kind of a job. Mm-hmm. Mm, Shannon, mm-hmm. generally the same thing that we we get the idea that he you know maybe down at the end you know when when Sinclair you know slaps him down uh, you know he Bester goes you know that's a lie and Sinclair is like yes it is what's your point even though Sinclair has sort of won the round you know there's going to be more this is a skirmish and best there is more to Bester and you know he may officially be going back and giving the story that Sinclair wants but unofficially he is going to fill in whoever he needs to on uh, what happened there the aura he had of sort of restrained power at times worked for me. Which is no small thing when you're dealing with a fairly small actor, you know. Anatomically impossible, Mr. Garibaldi. But you're <laughs> welcome to try. <laughs> uh, Finally, before we go into spoiler space, because we've been going for a little while and we, we, we really need to cut loose. But before we do, the subplot, the B-plot, Catherine Sakai, Jakar... Uh, what did you all think about that one? And I want to toss this one over to Erica. I I really liked it. Um, I, I the perform her performance in her little dustbin closet was maybe not the greatest. Some people can sell talking to themselves. Some people can't, and uh, she, and at least in this role, can't. I think, uh, which is a shame, um, because I, I liked the idea that that suddenly the Narns, the bad guys, are coming to the rescue, and that just you know. It, what kind of a double take sort of thing there and and i also kind of like the thought that that she's just you know headstrong enough that she's going to just go ahead and do whatever she feels like doing and i i really like the scene with jakar trying to talk her out of it and even more than that i like the scene at the end when she Mm -hmm. gets back and asks him why he did it and you know his answer is just why not and then his speech um about the ant as compared to a human as, and then a human compared to the, the crazy spaceship type thing that she saw was that was another piece of writing that I, I loved. And and Catsalus just he just delivers it with, with a plum. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's you can tell that JMS has read a lot of Stanley and Jack Kirby Fantastic Four stuff because I'm, I'm reminded of the dialogue between um, about Galactus, you know, when he attacks the Earth and. The humans are just like ants, you know, you know, it's almost it's almost got its DNA right there in those lines. But I do like that philosophical angle. It's the second episode in a row that has given Jakar some seriously three dimensional characterization after he was dodging the assassin in uh, Parliament of Dreams. It's always a good thing to have the commander's girlfriend character doing things on her own. And being a uh, mm-hmm. and, and being a uh, being a protagonist in her own right. Exactly that that was yeah, one of the reasons great. I loved it because it gives um, Julia Nixon the chance to play against Andreas Katsoulis. It gives um, you know Sakai a chance to realize you know just like the viewers are realizing that there's more to the Narn than she thought. And I know Erica said she didn't like the spaceship scenes, but um, I kind of liked it when she was sitting back and trying to imitate Jacquard. Like it just it looked like the perfect image of her being a pouty grump. It's like, you know, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, that worked but for me. But why is she doing a British accent? He's not British. I did not understand that. That was probably my least <laughs> No one said she thing. was good at imitating other voices. 
there you go. There you go. It's it, the three D roundedness of <laughs> Car- Catherine Sakai. The character is not a good mimic. <laughs> oh, boy, or maybe, nice or maybe that's, that's <laughs> maybe that's another side effect of Ironheart's like increasing consciousness. He can mute the ability of other people to do good good accents. <laughs> What that a crazy, exploding crazy, ships. Hap- <laughs> crazy random side effect. Oh, um, so we haven't been doing number rankings very much on this podcast, but I'm tempted to throw one out since we've got a guest on. Scale of one to five, what did you think of Mind War? We'll start with Erica. Oh, boy. Um, it, it's hard to say. I'm, I'm, I'm good to it. I think I'm going to give it a four. I, I rarely like to give anything the top top rank, but I really like this one. So, yeah, solid four. Mr. Anatko. I can't help but call upon my experience seeing the rest of the show and knowing what I need to reserve a four and a five for. So I would mm-hmm. give it a charitable three. I would give it an honest two, chiefly because, again, Ironheart's performance was just so distracting. And Shannon. Kind of the same, kind of the same, a, a three, but that's stretching it slightly for some of the things that I really, really liked about it. And I'll give it three and a half mice. And with that, <laughs> we will go off into the... Oh, so we so we have lawyers that are more powerful than IDG's lawyers, do we? <laughs> that's, something, that's something I didn't know about you. Excellent. Uh, I may get into trouble with this uh, when Jason's on for uh, believers. Anyway, <laughs> um, so we need to go into spoiler space and uh, wrap up this podcast. But first... We need to let you know that your homework for the next episode is The War Prayer. This will be the second episode that was not written by J. Michael Straczynski. D.C. Fontana, look her up. Interesting lady. You can find our other episodes at b5audioguide.com, and we're on social media on Tumblr and Twitter if you look for B5 Audio Guide. Andy, any last words for any of our listeners who may be watching Babylon 5 for the first time? Only that, I, you're, what you just said uh, with DC Fontana writing the next episode, I love the fact that it, Babylon 5 was its own thing, but you could also see clearly that J. Michael Straczynski had that list of, I, I want to show how much better Star Trek, or at least the, at least the original series, could have been. I'm going to hire some of the same writers. I'm going to hire some of the same actors. Uh, I did a, uh, uh, we're, we're, in, we're in spoiler zone now? or we're, Not, we're yet. In Not quite yet. Zone. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. So I will, I will say that a, uh, before, before we enter, enter spoiler zone, if there are things that ever annoyed you about the f- that kept you from fully enjoying Star Trek, that's why you should stick with Babylon 5, because I do think that this was almost explicitly, not, not partially explicitly motivated by his own annoyance at how Star Trek producers tended to resolve issues and how gee if i were writing this this is how i would have done it and so well what do you know i can uh, what if i'm not the producer of my own science fiction show i can actually resolve things the way i want them so great stick with it there if there are going to be two star and three star shows like this but once you get into the second series uh, uh, once you get into the second uh, second year of this that's when oh boy all the all the the throttle is all the way to at least three quarters because it's going to get even faster after this and that's when all of this stuff starts to pay off you're making an investment by watching babylon 5 season one absafragalutely ding there it was (laughs) ding and with that uh we're going into the jump gate if you're staying with us through the jump gate then you're being spoiled for the whole rest of the series we'll see you 
on the flip side. And we're back. And funneling enough with Andy with us, this is turning into a slightly longer episode than usual. And I'm happy about that. And I'm happy that you're with us. Andy, you're still here, right? I'm still here. I will try to talk less. I'm sorry. My enthusiasm about the things I love sometimes <laughs> translate into the inability to marshal my output. <laughs> well, if you we... add another entire person, of course it's going to take longer. That's just <laughs> math, baby. Math. Ah. Uh, I was told that there would be no math on this podcast. I'll do all the math. Don't worry. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Do this bit of math for me then, Erica. Okay. Jason Ironheart plus one million years equals first ones? Mm. Does this equation hold up? So I we, think so. We alluded to this in the pre-spoiler section, but yeah, this does feel a heck of a lot more important an episode when you take into account the deconstruction of falling stars, which was the series four finale that uh, took us a million years into the future. Yes, this we, is we birthed our first Vorlon. Yes, from the human. <laughs> we weren't meant to have this power, so uh, or so he told us. When you look at how poorly the um, Vorlons in the shadows handled their um, power, maybe you understand where that came from. So anyway, what does Mind War tell us about where um, the future of the series is going? Well, for one thing, it certainly gives us more basis for what's going to erupt into the telepath war. With um, seeing the first hard evidence of just how controlling the Psychor is, um, how um, insistent it is on trying to improve itself by forcing the issue rather than letting evolution take its course. What we see now is going to explode in uh, the fifth season. And I do think that it's a, uh, it is an interesting, you know, his comment at the end, see you in a million years did kind of make my ears prick up and go, Oh, that's much more classy he, than smell. You however, later, which is I, free. <laughs> I totally, or see you next Tuesday. Yeah. We don't like that either. Um, but I, I, the one thing I, I kind of noticed after it was done, I was mulling it over and thinking, Oh, he can see everything. He can see apparently a million years into the future. Uh, but the one thing that he couldn't see was apparently the, you know, hidden personality that's buried uh, in Talia's mind. Yep. Couldn't he well, have done something about that? I just, I and mean, I understand why it had to work out that way for, for, you know, a doyalist, from a doyalist perspective, but from the Watsonian perspective, I'm kind of like, hey, why did you fix this? So yeah. in other words, the gift that he could have given her was a mm -hmm. brand new car, but instead he gave her a box of chocolates. Yeah, yes. pretty much. Yeah, unfortunately, the, uh, as things happened and uh, Andrea Thompson had to leave, you know, JMS d did the best job he could to write her out. But yeah, that that's a nice big gaping plot hole there that um, Ironheart would not have seen what had happened to her. Yeah. I'm trying to tell myself that he was just distracted by trying to hold himself together so that, you know, he didn't want to peer too deeply into her because he was afraid that if he frayed apart at the edges while he was looking into her mind, that it would make her disintegrate as well or something. Mm. Like, I've managed to make it okay in my head, but it is one of those things that I did notice. It, it is a whole, and, and also I think that by the end of the episode, he gets a little bit Galactus-like himself. Where it's not that he does he certainly still cares about her, but he realizes that, well, yes, it's going to be a hassle for her that she's going to have to deal with for the next 
71 months but she's going to be fine before that she's going to be fine after that best just i don't need it i don't need to to help this aunt get, get from here to there because i know that she's going to get there without my help <laughs> but yes i, I did think, knowing what you know afterward you that's when you go back and say uh, hey yeah <laughs> yeah and you can also see that the heavy lifting that jms had to do clearly this was going to be the point that led to talia becoming a more and more powerful telepath, telekinetic, whatever, as you go along. But then you write out Andrea Thompson, you bring Patricia Tallman back in, and she almost immediately leaves and heads off for Vorlon space, gets augmented by the Vorlons, comes back, and now she's got that arc where she becomes yeah. more and more powerful and becomes the the nuclear bomb, the, the really big bomb, or yeah. whatever that line is at the end of season five. It makes me sort of regret what happened with the Talia arc between that and the recording that Kosh makes of her for reflection, yes. surprise for the future, all that stuff. And it gets taken out just like that. But then we remind ourselves that JMS knew going into this thing that these are actors who may get hit by a bus or who may have a significant mental illness or, you know, any number of things might happen. I wonder how thorough his trapdoors really were for all the characters. He promised us that he had trapdoors for every single one. This one was a little creaky, perhaps, but we're getting way <laughs> we're, we're getting way ahead yeah. of ourselves. Um, yeah, that's true. Something that I liked going with this is while there may be some trouble with the big continuity, um, the small continuity works fairly well. Um, you've got Sinclair complaining to Catherine that he's got to go have this meeting with the construction guild. Well, a couple episodes down the line, by any means necessary, that's blown up in his face. Mm -hmm, you know, right. little little things like that um, tend to tend to get worked very well. The other thing that I I liked too is uh, there's the conversation between Jason and Sinclair, where I mean Jason really does just sort of lay out everything about w what Psychor is trying to do, and at the end, you know, they take a step back and say, you know, it's 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 Bester's word against Jason's. Who do we who do we believe? But uh, now having seen the whole thing, it's like clear it was Jason pretty much laid it all on the line and just said, hey, this is what's going to happen and this is this is what Psychor is trying to do and that's exactly what they were. You know, they're already experimenting on their own folks, which I think actually in in another way that Psychor experimenting on their own folks is kind of an interesting echo of, you know, what the Vorlons have been doing to different races all along to create yeah. the telepaths. The telepaths yeah. have just picked up the baton and run with it. They're all about control, both the Vorlons and the Psychor. That's that comes right out in, in the in both stories. But isn't it nice how subtle he, he laid down two points that he knew was going to have people were going to have to have this in their mind as here are, the, here, here are the rules of the universe that this operates in. And that's pretty much everything for the first dozen episodes of the series where I want to explain what all the rules are before we start the real story. And there are two really big, important ones. One is one is which there's something very, very artificial about people having telepathic powers that even when the telepaths are themselves trying to experiment on each other, it indicates there is an, an immense amount of unlocked potential that isn't just simply evolution, that there's some sort of manipulation going on. And then secondly, the idea that now there are these races that are ancient, first one races. They're not like the we're not going to talk about them as though they are mythological creatures lost to the to the races of time. Everybody knows where they kind of hang out. They are very, very real. If you go there, you can actually see them, but you will probably be killed, not because they will try to kill you, but because simply their existence and their proximity to you will cause you to die. 
Uh, and those are two big ding, 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 ding sort of things that are going to pay off uh, in, in coming seasons. Not because there's something that's so important happened in this episode that's going to be re- referenced later, but because a year or two later, there doesn't have to be two minutes of exposition explaining that, oh, well, there are these million-year-old races that don't really take any notice of us and that we'd better sort of leave alone. Uh, it's because we remember that, oh, remember that episode where that really bad acting? and that, yeah, but, Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that from there. Although I do love it when Delenn does that little bit of exposition that there are billions of years ago creatures walked across the stars like giants. You know, yeah. I could I could listen to her exposit like that all the time. It was nice to see a freakish <laughs> yeah. spaceship that looks nothing like anything that we've been introduced to before. Yes, that the psychedelic itself, mushroom. Yes. yes, it was pretty. That's my favorite. <laughs> it looks like a Christmas tree ornament. I love it. Yeah. It's the only really good-looking first one ship that we see in the fourth season when they all bring them back. Um, it, it makes logical sense in the nature of the story from a doylist and Watsonian perspective, I suppose. That hat tip to you, Erica, for that. But um, it makes sense that Ivanova and Marcus would go on their crusade to find the first ones, that they go back to Sigma 957 because, hey, there was a clear first one there. But I'm almost sorry that they did go back there because... I just liked the notion of this giant space mushroom appearing and disappearing and never being seen again. I almost feel cheated that they brought it back. Well, yeah, waste not. I think I would have felt cheated if they hadn't. Yes, it's shiny. They've got, they've got the, they they saved a backup on those nine Amiga floppy diskettes. You may as well save the guys, (laughs) the VFX guys, some some more work and just reuse it. All right. (laughs) I submit to the wisdom of those assembled. Open your heart to the potential of joy, and joy will find you. <laughs> and uh, giant mushrooms. And giant exactly. mushrooms. Giant glowing mushrooms. Actually, from what I hear, mushrooms can help you open your heart to the potential of joy. <laughs> <laughs> Would this be some of this wisdom you picked up heard. from Canada? <laughs> Actually, no. Just checking. No. Um, I, <laughs> any other final thoughts? That was my thoughts? reprobate friends back home. Mm. Any final thoughts about... Mind War in the grander scheme of this uh, five-year series. I'll say that my if I have a particular fondness for Jakar's story arc all over all five years, where he goes from being this very, very warrior-like person who's very, very pleased to finally, after you know decades of subjugation, be the person who can actually start inflicting misery and inflicting their will upon other people, uh, peoples, uh, whereas instead of their history of always having to deal with what people want to do to them, and that evolution to a more saintly, literally a saintly sort of figure who actually writes something that beyond his desires becomes like a new holy book that is revered by his own people. And that's why I just, just like the rest of you guys, I like that last speech about the ant on the flower, because that's when you start to see that voice that almost like it's a a total separate personality that kind of remains hidden until like dust to dust where he has this religious experience with unbeknownst to him to, to a Vorlon where he realizes that he can be soft and he can be gentle and he can be wise and influential by the nature, by having this nature that is wise and gentle instead of having to bear onto a room. Uh, if there's so long as, uh, as long as Londo isn't involved, he can be the saintly figure. So this first peek at that side of Jakar was such a wonderful thing to see. Absolutely. He, he yeah. has nothing to gain by being a jerk. Therefore, he that, takes that was, 
that was take- a t- I'm sorry. I'm, that's that's something I, I, I wish I'd remember to say too. I, I have such admiration for how JMS did that. Where why did you why did you send a couple of ships out to because you knew that I'd be in trouble and rescue me? He doesn't have to say because I knew that at some point I'd be able to get a favor out of you, or because you know because I wanted to make a point about the unity of all species. It was literally well, why not? It seemed mm-hmm. to be an okay thing to do. It wasn't going to hurt me. It was going to help somebody who seemed to be worthy of saving. You know, I have the ability to make a, if I have the ability to save someone's life by making a phone call, why would I not make that phone call? Mm-hmm. Yeah, easy, I just wanted peasy, to piggyback great. on what, on what Andy s- said as well about Jakar's arc. I think with looking ahead to all of that, I think that is, per- makes it perfect that it's Jakar's line when, who says, no one here is exactly what he appears. It's, it's oh, a very yeah. true line, which is wonderful, but I like the fact that it comes from Jakar this early on before we've actually yeah. seen any transformation. This is just a hint of the wisdom that is yet to come. And then in that wonderful fifth season opening theme, that's one of the earliest lines in here. No one hears yes. exactly what I they love appear. It. Yeah. That, that's you know mm-hmm. that if nothing else, I think those words right there are the mission statement for Babylon Five. And it mm-hmm. applies to you know even though Bester is a secondary character, he also gets an arc. He stays essentially a villain throughout pretty much all of the series. But there will be episodes where he's allowed. The, where the story allows him to have a sympathetic side when his girlfriend, when his lover is um, taken as one of the people powering the ships and he tries to go after her, you know, we're allowed to see that he can be motivated by love. Doesn't happen very often, but, you know, that we get the same kind of bits of development, even with the smaller characters. Yeah. Without any, they did that without weakening the character. Exactly. Like, like, like in MASH, Margaret Houlihan was a great character for the first couple of seasons because she was, she had her own agenda. She had her own goals. She held other people in contempt and she didn't mind. She was so self-assured. She didn't mind other people holding her contempt, but they had to soften her and make her into one of the gang and one of the guys and weakened her. Bester always remained Bester until the very, very end. Only the difference was that as they added more layers, we appreciate that part Part of his worldview is that the telepaths are becoming a race that is going to be enslaved and just basically used as a tool of political people. I have to do things to make sure that that doesn't happen, that we maintain our individuality and our ability to control our own destiny. So he's still Bester, and that's con- he's still the bad guy to people who are in the way of that personal goal of his great stuff yeah that's i think that's why he's my favorite one of my favorite television villains of all time because he's <laughs> he's much more effective than many others because he's so three-dimensional he has his own goals and his own outlook his own reasons for doing things as you just said he's not evil for the sake of being evil um he's he's not mustache when he's mustache twirly like you know <laughs> that there's still some substance behind it uh, I, I just think that that's fantastic <laughs> I, whenever you can see things from the perspective of the villain and understand that but still really hate their guts like that's that is good writing yeah good writing and good performing uh, i am reminded of mm-hmm. him uh snidely pointing out to garibaldi that talia winters got dissected yes. yeah. i mean just you know just matter of fact like oh you mean when we dissected her or something like that. and the hell of it is you don't know if he's lying to, just to twist garibaldi's knickers yeah. Remember that? Remember that line for uh, I think season three or something, where another another great double act uh, B story, in which Garibaldi says says to Bester, "I want to string you up like a, a beach like a pinata, and not not rise into the <laughs> yes. bait." Bester just says, "Oh, so you see me as a bright colored festive thing filled with candy for children." Thank you, Garibaldi. <laughs> yep. 
Oh, I love it. If you're one of the folks like Stephanie, hi Stephanie, who has <laughs> who, who has not seen the full series before, but it's listening to the spoiler bits anyway. Like we keep telling you, you're doing it wrong. But look what you've got <laughs> to look forward to. And that's true. This is considered a teaser, indeed. And look what fun we've had with our first guest co-host, Andy Anatko from the Chicago Sun Times. The Anatko Almanac and Mac Break Weekly and many other places. Hooray! <laughs> thank, thank you. It was this was a lot. This was a lot of fun. Like like I said, I I do tend to talk a lot when I'm really impassioned about something I love. And Babylon Five is still. I, I we can we can talk about the things we don't like about it. We can talk about cheap effects and sometimes bad acting. But it's still just one of the most immensely satisfying series to get through. Ah, <sighs> happy side. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, don't you and Erica have uh, an incomparable to do somewhere or something like that? Or... <laughs> Probably. I've lost no, track. We're, we're, we're waiting for Jason's Skype connection to degrade down to the usual 8%. Right now it's at 12. There's actually a chance that we'll be able to understand each other as we talk. And oh, dear. We, 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 li- we like to give ourselves a good challenge. Uh, yep. Andy, thanks again for being with us. Uh, we hope to have you back sometime in the, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future. Next Sunday, AD, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> okay, you're just going all over off book. <laughs> Wrong show, dude. Wrong okay. show. <laughs> so, in I, that case, uh, my consciousness is expanding. I can, I can, I can under. I when I see your show, I see every TV show involving sci-fi or fantasy all at once. Just a collection of memes that can be manipulated and rearranged. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you, and uh, and for my second audition piece <laughs> from the Rainmaker. <laughs> okay, and on that note, it's time for us to say good night, good day, whatever time you're listening to this. We will be back next time with the War Prayer, which is perhaps not the most successful of episodes, but we'll get into that. We will be back. Uh, we will have uh, chat threads for you at b5audioguide.com. And for now, this is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Be seeing you. Prisoner reference. Right. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to say we didn't actually mention the prisoner yep. reference. Stephen flipped out for that. He was so excited. And and the salute. That was a... <laughs> yep. Yeah, he was just like, oh my God, he did everything right from the motions to everything. I think if you turn on the closed captions, you can actually see JMS writing, thanks for watching, nerds. Here's a little something for you. <laughs>